Well, howdy, everybody. It's a beautiful day outside. So glad you joined us on such a beautiful summer day. I love summertime in Oregon, in Portland. It's the time and there's a place to be here. So you don't want to go away for the summertime in, in Portland. Like, you want to be here. Like, this is where the party is at. You want to be in Portland. You want to be outside doing stuff. So we're real grateful that you're here today to join us and just uh, celebrate what God is doing. And we're just so excited. We believe God is doing a new work, something special in the city of Portland. We believe that there's going to be a revival like we've never seen before in the city of Portland. And you get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of it. That's something that God is, the Holy Spirit is working. and He wants to, to partner with each and every one of us. You have certain gifts, you have certain unique abilities that God has blessed you with, and the Holy Spirit wants to take those things and use them to glorify the name of Jesus, to glorify the name of Jesus. And so we're real happy that you're here. I had to, uh, I had to represent today. You know, what I, you know what I mean? I had to represent. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a long-time Laker fan. I've been a long-time Mag- Magic Johnson fan. This is, this, is Mag- this is Magic Johnson. If you know anything about the old school Lakers, I've, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore Laker fan, ride or die, my whole entire life. And, like, you know, when it's beautiful like this, I'm just like, I have to, you know, I have to throw on something a little lighter, you know what I mean? And then I get all the hate, you know what I mean? I'm walking downtown, I'm like, they're, they're hating on me. They're like, Damian Lillard, they're Damian I'm like, bro, this is old school. This is throwback. This is, this is, not, this, this is not the modern age, all right? But, so, yeah, but I, I, how many of you were, like, Laker fans growing up? Any got Laker fans? We got one we got one freaking Laker fan here. You got one too? You're a Laker fan? Oh, yeah, you're from L.A. You're from that area. Who, need, uh, who, who is, like, lifetime Blazers fan? Like, you were just, you grew up on the Blazers. You, this is Portland. We have, like, two of them here. This is what's going on. What's going on? How about the Boston Celtics? Any Celtic fans in here? Okay, okay, we're praying for you. We're praying for your soul. We're praying for that. Don't worry about that. But, uh, yeah, it's real, it's real good. It's real good. So we're happy. We're working our way through the way. Amen? The way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. And that's been our series, that's been our sermon series on discipleship. What is the way of Jesus? How did he live? What are the rhythms and patterns of his life? Right? So when we look at trying to mimic the teachings of Jesus, right, to obey his teachings, to communicate his teachings, we're also looking at the lifestyle of Jesus. Did you know that? So it's not just about what he said, but what did he do, right? So much time and so much attention in Christian teaching and Christian theology is on what Jesus said rather than on what Jesus did. But I love this. I'm going to read this for us tonight here. This is in uh, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 here. It's going to be on the screen in a minute. James chapter 2, verses 14. You can pop this up on your phone or whatever or just look on the screen, but it says this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart, be in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's useless. Totally futile. You can have all the faith in the world. You can have faith that 
can move mountains and say to this mountain, move and it shall move and nothing will be impossible for you. But if it's not backed up through action, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It's, it's meaningless. It, it's futile, he says. It, it's, it's dead. It can't do anything effective. It can't, it can't impact or create change. It's dead if it's not followed by works. And there's a lot of confusion. What are you saying? Are you saying that we're saved by, by works? No, 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 that's not what we're saying. But we're saying genuine faith. When you have genuine faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, it is the effect. It is followed by authentic works for a life that has been changed through the Holy Spirit. When you are living out this thing, when you have genuine faith, life-giving, life-saving faith, what happens is that your life becomes transformed and you cannot help but begin to walk it out and live it out and breathe it out. And it becomes a fabric of your being to do, to obey the teachings and the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. So I wanted to, to talk about this subject here today. I wanted to talk about the way as action. As action. The way as action. And we're actually going to tie this into the, the topic. And this is a kind of a hot topic in Portland. But it, a hot topic called social justice. Social justice. And this kind of, what I've experienced is that this kind of freaks a lot of people. Like a lot of Christians think this is like a very progressive belief or ideology. And they don't actually recognize that it's social justice is so rooted and so grounded in scripture. To deny it is to deny part and fabric of the gospel. This is the crazy thing. It's not, it's not a progressive ideology. It is a very biblical grounded in scripture, immersed in scripture, it's there again and again and again and again. So a lot of the general assumptions when we talk about social justice, a lot of the assumptions that come into our mind in a Western worldview is, is the political and social activism. We think of protests downtown Portland. We think of the shouts and the chants for, for racial justice and racial equality. Or what about cultural Marxism, right? The oppressed versus the oppressor. Or we think, of the, we think of LGBTQ plus rights. Or we think of humans' rights. So we think of human and sex trafficking or wealth inequality or in intersectionality or institutional racism. These are all different fabrics and different components of what may come to mind in our Western worldview of what happens when someone says social justice, right? But my question here today is what does the Bible say about social, social justice? I think in general, social justice is a political and philosophical concept holding that all people should have equal access to wealth, health, well-being, justice, privileges, and opportunity. In practice, it can be initiated through various actions, programs, and government organizations. But what does the Bible say? And I think this is a very good working definition of, of the biblical teaching on social justice. It's that the process by which the body of Christ tactfully advocates. Somebody say advocate advocates for the lost, the hurting, the marginalized of society by action that preserves, protects, and builds up the kingdom of heaven within the history of human civilization as a direct, and I want you to get this, as a direct extension, as a direct and immediate extension and tightly interwoven into the fabric of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We're not saying that social justice is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're saying that social justice is in a direct effect. It is a direct extension of the gospel of Jesus. And we're going to see that here in a little bit. I, I love what 
N.T. Wright, he's one of my favorite New Testament theologians, he says something that was really quite, quite striking to me. He says, for the secular postmodern, which is the world that we live in, postmodernism, which is defined, truth, truth in postmodernism is defined by relativism. In other words, that truth for you is, is different for truth for me, right? So you can believe what you want to believe, Cole, and that's cool, and I can believe what I want to believe, and that's what your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. But there's no objective universal truth. Does that make sense? There's no objective understanding of what reality or what truth, absolute truth is. Such a notion, absolute truth, isn't a notion within postmodern ideology, right? But as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that there is objective truth. There is universal reality, right? We may not always understand it in its entirety because we are humans, right? And our comprehension is very limited. We're not infinite beings and, and infinite in our wisdom and knowledge and understanding of God. So we understand and see in part, and Paul talks about that over and over again. But it doesn't deny the reality that truth, universal truth, objective truth exists in the world. Does that make sense? So this is what, the, this is what N.T. Wright says. He says, for the secular postmodern, the strongest intersection between the Christian faith and the secular world is the doctrine of the fall, right? When Adam and Eve, right, they took of the fruit, right, from the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they ate of it, the doctrine of the fall. They fell from their perfectly created position in heaven. And so this, he says, this can be partially attributed to the mutual understanding that there is an overwhelming sense of brokenness, a deep flaw or distortion of how the world should be and how it should operate. Injustice seems to rule and to reign. In other words, he's saying the greatest, the greatest commonality that Christianity has with our world today is the doctrine of the fall. Because if you talk to anyone out there, if you talk to anyone out there with a postmodern worldview, they will recognize that there is something deeply flawed with humanity. There is something deeply wrong at the very root and at the very core of us as human beings. There's something wrong. And so because there's something wrong, guess what? We need to do something about it, right? We, we, we need to, to evoke change. We need to, we need to fight for justice because where, where there's injustice, we need to prove and fight for justice and to reverse the cycles of evil and injustice in our world today. So amazing that postmodernism is actually more in favor, would actually seem to be the, the spearhead or the trailblazer for social justice in our world today. What's amazing about this and what blows my mind about this is that for centuries, for millennia, the church was leading that way. The church was leading that conversation. The church was the one who was pushing for racial equality, social justice. And guess what? Instead, today, the forerunners, the, the, the leaders of that conversation is the world. And I'm thinking, man, if we had an understanding of what Jesus stood for, what the gospel stood for, it would be the church of, of Jesus that would be leading that conversation, that would be leading and spearheading the way for, for justice and for equality for all people. After all, we're, we're made in the image of God, and that image of God was distorted, right? The image of God, we, we fell from our good and perfect created order when our forefathers, when, when our foreparents, when they ate of the fruit the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so there was a distortion. And now through the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, what the enemy intended for evil, God is now reversing the cycles of evil and injustice through the ministry of the sent one, who was Jesus, the sent one from the Father, 
and through his sent ones, which is you and I today. Did you know that you are actually responsible for partaking of the ministry of Jesus, which is to partner with his ministry, which was equality, which was justice, which was advocating for the marginalized? Did you know that we are actually to partake of that ministry of Jesus today? We are the sent ones. As Jesus was sent into the world, the Bible says that, as Jesus says this to his disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you out into the world. You are the sent ones from Jesus to model his ministry, to model, the, 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 to, to follow in the wake and the patterns of the footsteps that Jesus mimicked and modeled so perfectly for us today. So that was Nicholas Thomas Wright, and this is maybe, a lot of you guys know this guy, his name is Rob Bell. How many, put your hands up if you know who Rob Bell was, or you heard of Rob Bell. Um, he he, he kind of fell off the deep end a little bit, but we're, we're still, we're, we're, we, there's some good stuff from Rob, Rob, Rob Bell. And so he says this. Back in the day, he says, people say, oh, man, I love this. This is good. If you're taking notes, write this, write this one down, all right? He says, people say they can't believe in a God of judgment. Yes, they can. Often we think of little else. Every oil spill, every report of another woman sexually assaulted, every news report that another political leader has silenced the opposition through torture, imprisonment, execution, every time we see someone stepped on by the institution or corporation more interested in profit than people, every time we stumble upon one more instance of the human heart gone wrong, we shake our fist and we cry out, will someone please do something about this? We crave judgment. We actually long for judgment, he says. We thirst for it. We bring it, unleash it. As the prophet Amos says, let justice roll on like a river. Man, I thought about that. I was like, people today, they're scared to talk about the judgment of God. Have you noticed that? Like, let's just talk about, let's just talk about like, Jesus as a shepherd, not Jesus as Yahweh Saviot, the warrior God who comes with eyes blazing like fire to judge every man and woman according to his work and to give a reward for each person according to what they have done with their time and resource in this life. We're all wanting to talk about the shepherd Jesus, but none of us want to talk about the warrior Jesus who brings judgment on the world. And I thought this was really powerful because what our heart's cry is as a culture, as a, in the Western worldview, in postmodernism, our cry as a culture is justice. We want someone to bring justice. We want someone to, to take all the wrong and make it right. We're dying, we're craving, we're crying out for God to bring judgment, but we don't realize the one who is able, right? Who is able to bring that. He says, let justice roll on like a river. That's the prophet Amos. And so I want to read uh, another verse here, and I want to give, this is what I want us to ground ourselves in today, is how core social justice is to, is, is, how core it is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're, if you're with me, we're going to pop it on the screen here. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. And uh, open up in your, in your, on your phones too. So this is when Jesus is beginning his ministry He's beginning his ministry, and he gets baptized by John in the Jordan River. And upon his ascension from the baptismal waters, Jesus begins his ministry, his three-and-a-half-year ministry, 
which was filled with signs, wonders, miracles, supernatural healings, blind people seen for the first time, lame people walking for the first time. It was so extraordinary and so supernatural. And, and what Jesus says, after he comes up from the waters of baptism, and he goes to a synagogue, and this is in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the and recovery of sight to the to set at liberty those who are wow to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened and fixed on him. And he began to say to, the, to, them, to them, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's crazy about this is that when Jesus announced the inauguration of his gospel, it was in the context of setting the oppressed free of setting those who were, were blind and giving them sight again, those who were marginalized and giving them hope again. The way that Jesus announced his ministry, it was in the context of a social revolution that would change the world of the oppressed and of the marginalized. That was his gospel. That's how he describes it. Think about this. How many of you, when you think of the gospel, you think of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, but you fail to think of the immediate effects that ha that has on your neighbor? How many of us, when we think of the gospel of Jesus, we think of us going into heaven, a place later, a place in the future, and we neglect the reality that the kingdom is here? Do you hear what I'm saying? How many of us, when we think of the gospel, we think of trusting and believing and having faith, and all of a sudden it becomes privatized, and, and religion becomes personal in, in our worldview, in, our, in, our, in the character of the Western world, and it becomes personal and intimate, and it fails to have implications for our societal reality. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was interested in how his gospel would revolutionize people's lives around him. And today, we're interested in how you're, the gospel can just revolutionize you and I right here today. Just personally, just one-on-one, -on -one, just me and you. How it can change my heart, but it can't change our society. It can't change our culture. And that is everything but the gospel of Jesus. When Jesus announced his gospel, he says the kingdom of God is not something that you see, or you'll say it's here or there. The kingdom of God is in our midst. It's something that is here, and it's a reality that we bring from heaven to earth today. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is here. And look at this. This is crazy. This is crazy. Here we go. I love this. So after the enlightenment, we call this post-enlightenment ideology, uh, it gave birth to the notion, which I talked about, Western individualism. So Western individualism is really, if you were going to epitomize Western individualism, think about Instagram and, and branding and everybody having their personal brand and it's all about me and there's no corporate reality, there's no corporate sense. Western individualism advocates and pushes for the individual, right? What happens in that reality is that faith begins to lose its substance and power in a corporate, in a corporate reality. Does that make sense? When Jesus brought his gospel, when he brought his good news, it had very corporate 
very holistic, very societal realities and implications. And we've lost sight of that in the Western worldview. And instead, we've inherited a Western distortion of a faith that was actually Eastern in origin. This just blows my mind. Every time you go to the East, right, you go to the Middle East, you go somewhere overseas, you, you, you go and you go to Jordan or Lebanon or Israel, Egypt, I've been to all those places. And what you find is that people don't identify just with themselves. People identify with the community. They find their identity not in their individuality. They find their identity through their family, through their neighborhood, through their city, through their, through their country. It's a corporate reality. And instead, Jesus came from the east. What he taught was from an eastern origin. And we've, we've kind of viewing the gospel through western lens that it was never intended to be viewed at or viewed as. And so we've lost something very important, something very powerful, where this personal salvation versus a corporate salvation that Jesus had intended, that he had in mind. And so when we think about heaven, we think heaven is somewhere else beyond the clouds. Heaven is for a later date after death. Heaven is, is a perfect and distilled utopia somewhere else, somewhere over there, somewhere anywhere but here. It's, it's too toxic here. It's over there. It can't be here. And we've lost sight of the picture that Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. How many of you truly believe that the kingdom of God is within you? How many of you truly believe that God is wanting to partner with you and I, with Bloom Church, to bring a foretaste of heaven to earth? How many of you are wanting to activate that reality so that you won't live a life of faith simply to yourself, but that you will work out your salvation so that others will see it and glorify your Father who art in heaven. I think God has a bigger plan. I think God has a bigger scope for your life. I think God has something much bigger, something much greater destined for your life than simply your salvation. I wonder if it's the salvation of our world. I wonder if it's reaching 100,000 people for the gospel of Jesus in Portland. I wonder if it has greater and wider implications than we could ever dream of. But until you say, enough of me, you hear what I'm saying? Until you say, yeah, spend your time in the secret place. Get your time in the presence of God. That's where the transformation happens. That's where the power is in the presence of God. But until you come to an end to yourself and say, okay, so what? I feel with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So what's next for my life? Do you hear what I'm saying? What's the response? How, how am I called to evoke change in my community? How am I called to, to create change and to advocate for the marginalized and the oppressed? And how am I called to get on the streets and minister to the, to the, to the, to the lost and to the brokenhearted? And how am I called to, to create change? Until we get to that reality, many of us are spoon-feeding ourselves spiritual nutrients that will serve zero good for our world. We're spoon-feeding ourselves spiritual nutrients. And what happens is when you just keep feeding yourself and you're not exercising it out, you know what happens? You become out of shape. It begins, your muscles begin to atrophy. All of a sudden, faith is like a muscle. See, the more I work it out, you hear what I'm saying? The more I work it out, the bigger it is. When I'm in the gym, Cole, come on somebody, Cole, brother. 
Come on, somebody. Cole, when I'm in the gym and we're doing those curls, right, baby, and we're going, and you're telling me to go four, four sets of whatever in two minutes, and you're just pumping them out, and you're just pumping them out, and I'm just, like, dying under the, you know what I mean? And we're just pumping up. How many, like, when we do that, we're building, we're strengthening, because when we face resistance, we grow. You hear what I'm saying? When we face resistance, we grow. If I never got in the gym, my muscles would begin to atrophy. The same is with our faith muscle. If we aren't working it out, if we're not activating it, if we're not, if we're not uh, facing resistance, if we're, not, if we're not facing and doing action, our faith will begin to die. It will die. That's a guarantee. If you think coming here, hearing a sermon, hearing a message on Sunday, whatever the weekend, is going to give you the type of faith that's going to change your world, you're, you're gravely mistaken. You're gravely mistaken. Until you realize that you need to activate it inside of you. It's never enough to know. It's never enough to know. Look, Paul says this. James says, he says, don't be simply hearers of the word. Be doers. Come on, somebody. It's not enough to know. You can have all the information. of the. I know some of the, the greatest minds, the greatest PhDs. I thought the Pharisees were really good at this. They could shove their head of information, but their souls and bodies and actions were devoid of anything good because they didn't allow the knowledge of Christ to transform their reality around them. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Am I just talking to myself today? I think I might just be talking to myself today. But you got to allow the, the, the reality of the gospel to transform your life, to, to absorb into the fabric of your being so that you will go ahead and say, when Jesus says go, you go. When Jesus says go, you go. And you allow your faith, you allow your faith to transform the world around you through doing, through action. Right? Not through vocabulary. Yes, is, is, is the gospel a necessary thing to, 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 to articulate? Yes. But it goes beyond that as well. It has to lead to a transformed life and transformed living and action in your world. Or else it is dead. Be not simply hearers of the word, but, but be doers. And, and this is the thing. When Jesus, this is Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. And I'm going to leave you with, 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 with these thoughts here. When, 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 when Jesus announced the kingdom of heaven, look what he says. Luke 17, 20 through 21. He says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of heaven would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is, is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is in your midst. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 14, this is really good. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus says is here. Look at this. Which Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom of God is now. It's in your midst. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel, the good news, the ouagalion in Greek, the good news of the kingdom of God, which is today, which is here, which is now, which is you and I activating our faith. Does that make sense? The good news is a news that changes the bad news all around us. The good news of Jesus is news that transforms and transcends every societal reality around us. That, that's, the, that's the substance, that's the core of the gospel. And he says in Matthew 4, verse 17, he says, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus went about all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
the gospel of the kingdom. There's this belief or this, this teaching, it's called, and I'll just get the band, the band can come up here. But there's this teaching called by Oscar Coleman. And he was a favorite theologian of mine, Oscar Coleman, uh, modern theologian, um, who was living just, he's, I, think, I believe he's still, I think he's still alive today actually. But um, he taught this idea of the kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. It's here, but it, its full consummation isn't entirely here. There's this tension between the kingdom is here, but the kingdom in its full reality, we're still waiting. Like until Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven, right, with eyes blazing like fire to judge every man and woman according to his work and, and to resurrect those who are asleep in their graves, the full consummation, the full reality of the kingdom of heaven, we're still waiting for that. But in the present, See, this is the powerful thing, is that God is calling us, he's calling you and I, to drag the reality, drag the perfect reality of heaven into the here and now. To, to bring that foretaste of, of, of the afterlife, to bring that foretaste of the divine realm, of the later into the now. It's already here, but it's not yet. And so we live in the tension of hurting and, and having hope. We live in the tension of, of, of breathing and being unable to breathe. We live in the tension of, 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 of justice and injustice. We live in the tension of, of bringing the kingdom here, but we're, we're still waiting for something and longing for something much better. But what we want to do is we want to allow the teachings and the way and the rhythm and the life and the deeds of Jesus to take root in our hearts, to take root in our minds so that we can flip an upside down world right side back up again. So that we can begin to see the kingdom of heaven with all its glory, with all its power. And I believe the kingdom has power. I believe there's so much power in the kingdom of God. And I know that God is wanting you to breathe and live out and activate that which he put inside of you. He put something so powerful inside of you. It's called the Holy Spirit. And when you have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you, you have the power and presence of the fullness of heaven at your disposal. You have the kingdom of God within you. The kingdom of God can say to every stronghold, every chain, every broken individual, the kingdom of God can say move and it shall be broken off in the mighty name of Jesus. The kingdom of God is so powerful. Ain't no devil in hell. Ain't no hound of hell. Ain't no thing on this earth. Ain't no human or power or principality or authority can stop the way, can get in the way of the kingdom of heaven. It's transformative in his power. It's so mighty in his glory. It was inaugurated by Jesus on the cross and he took the cross which was a symbol of death, which was an instrument of torture and he turned it into something good into something mighty into something powerful into something that would transform and transcend the world that we live in and his name is Jesus his name is Jesus 
And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven on earth that he is Lord and Savior. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and he will bring judgment and he will bring righteousness. And everyone that was hurt, every wrong will be made right. And every person that was silenced will be given a voice. And every marginalized individual will be freed and set free by the power and kingdom of God at work in the world today. His name is Jesus and we worship him. Stand to your feet as we worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We lift you high, Jesus. We lift you high.